We read chapter 3, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 10. We'll continue our exposition in the book of Jonah, this time from chapter 3. Thus says the word of God. And the word of God came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah rose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. This further reading of God's word. Our text tonight comes from the book of the prophet Jonah, as we'll continue our exposition in the book of Jonah, chapter 3. But before we start, let's come before the Lord once again and ask for his blessing. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, we come before Thee, Lord, to hear from Thy words, Lord. O Lord, speak to us. Turn the hearts of the fathers unto the children and of the children unto the fathers, Lord. Turn us, Lord, from our evil ways unto Thee and for Thy glory. O Lord, Lord, prepare us for the day that we will rejoice with Thee, Lord. As we just sang, Lord, for the day that it will be into Thy presence, rejoicing with the children of Zion in thy presence forevermore. We pray, Lord, that even to thee, thou would draw us nearer to thee. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A pastor from Scotland called John Harper was returning from ministering in Chicago to England with his six-year-old daughter, his trip was on the newly inaugurated ship called Titanic. But on the night of April 14, 1912, 
the Titanic struck an iceberg. And that would be the end of the journey for hundreds of people. Out of 2,240 passengers, only 706 survived. Although Harper was caught by surprise in that unexpected and terrifying circumstances, he took the chance to use his last words to preach a final sermon, to preach to dying souls. It is said that Harper wrapped his daughter in a blanket, told her that she would see him again one day, and watch her safely board one of the lifeboats. She survived that day. But Harbor stayed on the ship. He asked that our, the Titanic Orchestra to play Near My God to Thee. And he proceeded to shout, Women and children and the unsaved into the lifeboats. Although for very different reasons, Jonah was in a very similar circumstance. By God's providence, he was brought there at that moment, at that point in time, in that place. Unwillingly, that is true. And with thousands of dying souls before him, he had one sermon to deliver. A last call to make peace with God, for the day of judgment was coming. One last time to display God's compassion for sinners. It is this emblematic encounter that we will meditate today. How God's compassion for sinner was displayed at Nineveh. And to do so, we'll meditate on three points. First, a recommissioned preacher, verses 1 to 4. Second, a repented nation, verses 5 to 9. And third, a reconciling God, verse 10. We really have three reactions here in this chapter. First, we have Jonah's reaction to God, to his encounter with God. Second, we have how the people react to Jonah's preaching. And third, we have how God reacts to the people's repentance. So first, let's consider Jonah's reaction, a recommissioned preacher. This, this chapter opens with familiar words, with the very same words that chapter 1 began. The very same five words in Hebrew. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. The fact that Lord, he repeats the very same words again, displays his patience to deal with Jonah, with his stubborn prophet Jonah, giving him a chance to start again. Although Jonah didn't deserve, God was giving him a second chance, once again telling him what to do. Then verse 2 repeats again the first seven words of verse 2 of chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach or, or cry, same words, against it. God's plan for Nineveh didn't change. All this time has passed, but God's plan for Nineveh, for that city, remained the same. So God commissions Jonah to call, to go there and preach to them, to preach the preaching, or to proclaim the proclamation. The point is that it is a specific message. God is commissioning Jonah with a specific message, to go there and preach the preaching. 
although Jonah was being recommissioned, he was not free to preach whatever he wanted or to say whatever he wanted. He had a specific calling. The call of the prophet is very clear. You speak what God commands, nothing more and nothing less. Jonah is a good example that what goes in the mind of a preacher might not reflect the Lord's mind. But what comes out of his mouth should all the time. There is no freedom in the work of a preacher. The authority starts and ends in so far as it reflects what God says. You preach the preaching. God is reminding him that there is no freedom in ministry. Not where to go and much less what to say. Every preacher should repeat the words of Micaiah, of the prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, verse 14. What the Lord saith unto me, that I will speak. Nothing more, nothing less. You preach the preaching. Although Jonah is alive, he was spared from out of the fish's belly. He is in no position to bargain before the Lord. He has no chance to bargain with the Lord. No. His commission remains the same. Arise, go to Nineveh, and preach the preaching. God didn't ask for Jonah's opinion. He simply told him once again to obey his command. Perhaps one of the problems with modern Christianity is that we often think that God, what God is telling us are mere suggestions and not commandments. The Great Commission, for instance, is not a suggestion. It is an imperative for us, for His church. When Jesus, before ascending into heaven, gave His very last words to His disciple, telling, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is an imperative, a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. You go and preach the gospel to every preacher. We can say that we are even more guilty than Jonah for thinking that mission and evangelism is an option. You see, God recommissioned Jonah to do so, but how many times through his word God has commissioned us to do the same thing, to proclaim the proclamation, to announce this gospel that we hold so dearly. But this time, finally, Jonah had learned the lesson. Verses 1 and 2 were very similar to the opening of chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And now in verse 3, we have the answer that Jonah should have given in the first place. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Finally, no more running from the presence of the Lord, but going into the city according to the word of the Lord. Jonah finally obeyed the Lord and went to fulfill his mission. In chapter 4, we'll see how he was not entirely happy to do this, but he obeyed nonetheless. Perhaps out of the fear of facing that storm again or the, or the great fish, or out of the understanding that even against his will, it matters first to obey God. And I hope that we will be transformed today to obey his commands as well. 
hopefully out of love for God, but if necessary, even out of fear for Him. The reference that Nineveh was a great city of three days' journey is most likely a reference to his mission work in that place. Nineveh was not a terribly large city against what is expected. It was about eight miles around the city. But it was great in terms of its political significance and also in terms of the great plans that God had for that city. One way or the other, Jonah was going to spend three days in his missionary journey on that city, evangelizing on the streets of that city. It's interesting that there is no mention of Jonah's travel to Nineveh. Say, in one verse, he is there on the beach, and on the next verse, he is already entering the city of Nineveh, already going there to preach. He receives God's commission, and then in verse 4, He's already entering the city to proclaim the message. Here we have a summary of perhaps was one of the most effective sermons in history. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This would become the, one of the most effective sermons in history. A whole city would experience a revival. Under these words. And since Jonah is a very succinct book, very short, this, was, this is probably a summary of what he said during these days. But the point is, is that it was a message of destruction, a message of imminent judgment that was coming upon that city. And this is quite a picture for Nineveh. There is this foreign prophet coming out of nowhere. And he starts preaching a message of judgment. Repent. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. It's quite a message, shocking message for that city. Imminent destruction was coming. And the number 40 often remembers a time of probation, even as we heard this morning. 40 days is the time that the flood was upon the earth, Genesis 7, 17. 40 days was the time that Moses was on the mountain, Exodus 24, 18. 40 years was the time that the Israelites walked in the wilderness, as we heard this morning, Joshua 5, verse 6. 40 days was the time of Elijah's journey to Horeb in 1 Kings 19, verse 8. And finally, Jesus was led to be tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by the devil. So Nineveh had 40 days to make peace with God. 40 days before the city was overthrown. And the expression overthrown speaks of imminent destruction. That's it. That would be the end for Nineveh. It speaks of how God would bring judgment upon that city. How his hand would it be heavy upon that city and his wrath would vanish that city out of the map the same word appears as God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 verses 21 and 25 you see the same destiny that was reserved for Sodom and Gomorrah was now prepared for Nineveh in 40 days this city will be overthrown nevertheless 
This word also refers to turn upside down, to turn something completely. God will turn Nineveh upside down. This appears in the book of Esther. As God transforms the fate of the Israelites, that day becomes a day to be remembered. Esther 9, verse 22. As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, from mourning into a good day. Therefore, this word can also refer to a complete transformation. See, God would turn Nineveh one way or the other. For Nineveh, that transformation would be a spiritual revival in the city. But either way, God would turn that city in complete destruction or in a reformation and revival across that land. Nineveh would be upside down. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this is not the typical Jesus loves you and has a great plan for you that we hear nowadays. This is not the same kind of easy gospel that is preached everywhere that floods the churches in America. Jonah didn't accommodate the message to his audience. He was preaching to a wicked people he didn't accommodate the message. He didn't try to fit the message to his secularized society. He simply preached what God told him to preach. No compromise. We live in a time when churches are removing the sharpness of the message. Trying to remove the edges, the sharpness that the message carries. Making it softer, making it more palatable to the individual to please the audience. And when we hear the words of First Timothy chapter 4, we cannot help but thinking that we are living these days. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they reheap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from, from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. This is what has flooded the churches everywhere. Itching ears, pleasing words, the easy gospel, removing the sharpness of the word. And God commissions us to carry his word, is to preach the preaching, not to add, not to remove but you say what he says, nothing else. Jonah is commissioned, recommissioned, but the gospel remains the same, unchangeable. Likewise, our call is to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebu rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. The gospel is the same, doesn't matter in the season, the seasons change. The gospel remains the same. Jonah is recommissioned. But the gospel is unchangeable. And that is by preaching this non-negotiable gospel, this unchangeable truths, that we have the most extraordinary result. The unexpected happens. We have a repented nation. Verse 5. 
So the people of Nineveh believed God. See, they didn't simply believe Jonah. They believed God. They believed the God of Jonah. They believed God. They recognized it was God's word before, behind Jonah's words. They believed in God. They recognized that Jonah's word were, were God's words. And immediately after that, they proclaimed a fast. Not, not just a local fast, but a nationwide fasting day for everyone. And we have here evidence of repentance. We have a few different evidences of repentance. First, say that they believed in God. And second, it is expressed by their actions of humbling before God, humbling their hearts before God. The prophet Jeremiah also preached to his nation that God would overthrow Jerusalem. Same word. But the result was quite different. Jeremiah was in prison as a traitor. Jeremiah 26, verse 8. But Jonah, the unknown prophet to a wicked nation, was not. On the contrary, they heard him, they heard the message, and they believed God. That is to show us that it is God's sovereignty, sovereign work, not ours. It rests in God alone and not in, on us. There is only so much we can do, but the power to transform the lives of the people rests in Him alone, His sovereign decree to change the heart of the sinner man. In chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we saw that one of the saddest things is the world rebuking the church. Now, in chapter 3, we see her that one of the happiest things that can happen is the world being changed by the church. And the, great, the big question for us is, which one are we? Are we being rebuked by the world in chapter 1? Or are we changing the world around us? We are either changing the world or we are giving reasons to be rebuked by the world. But as Jonah preached, the king is so touched by God's word. Verse 6. That he leaves his throne and sits upon ashes. He humbles himself. He removes all the glory, all the adornments upon himself. In a sign of complete humility before God, before the Lord. And he sits upon ashes. The king gives an example of how the whole nation ought to behave. And this is not true only in the ancient world. It is true nowadays as well. A humble king is a picture of a humble nation. But on the other hand, a proud king is often a sign of a proud nation. And our hope is that just as the Lord broke the heart of that evil king, of that wicked and proud king, he can break the hearts of our rulers nowadays as well. But for that to happen, we must preach the preaching. We must proclaim the gospel that we have received. And the message hit the nation from the throne room to the byways and country lanes. 
verse 7 and 8. Jonah is such a fascinating book because not only the king was humbling himself, but now, almost as a picture lesson, even the animals were fasting and covered with sackcloth. It's strange for us today, but this was part of the culture of that time to include the animals in the rituals that would happen. They were part of solemn fasting or rituals at that time. But this was not just a mere outward gesture. No, the point is that there was a widespread commotion and repentance in the land. Throughout the whole city, everyone would be to humble themselves before God. Widespread. Everyone from the least to the great of them. Everyone. In the book of Jonah, everybody converts, right? We saw how the sailors were converted. The king, the citizens, and almost as a picturesque image, even the animals are humbled. Of course, they are not converted, but they are humbled. And this prepares for one of the greatest ironies in the book. What about God's prophet? But we will leave that for the next chapter. Verse 8 tells us that the people were then to cry mightily unto God, to call instantly to God, to keep on calling God, to pray to Him, to storm the mercy seat before the Lord. Pray, pray earnestly to Him. Pray to the Lord. Humble yourself. Pray to Him unceasingly. Spiritual revivals are often connected to intense prayer. They are praying as if their lives depend on it. Because it does. Because it did. True repentance will come accompanied by this urgency to plead before the Lord. To pray to Him. When the sinner man recognizes how he has sinned against the God Almighty, he feels that he has to flee before his throne and beg to God. Humble himself before the Lord and pray to Him because he's know that He knows that his life depends on it. Plead with God. Then we have another mark of true repentance. Let them turn, turn everyone from his evil way. Abandoning the evil ways and turning to God. See this... Turn away, it speaks of a complete reversal and 180 degrees change. You were going left and now you are going right. More than simply abandoning evil and sin, no, it's turning away from evil and sin and turning unto holiness, turning unto God. It's a complete change, a complete turn away from evil to God. And this speaks of turning away from all kinds of sins in your life. It includes all areas of your life. Marriage, work, study, private life, public life. All areas, everything. You put off the old man and you put on the new man. You cannot allow an area of your, of your life to remain not submitted, unsubmitted to God. Your whole life has to turn away from evil to God. It's a complete change. 
You were going on a path to evil and sin, and now you're going on a path to holiness and God. True, true repentance is something you profess with your lips, but also the, that you execute with your life. And the topic of their petition comes in verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? In this verse, we have a very similar profession as the shipmaster gave to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 6. A profession of faith that recognizes that God is sovereign over all. It is His will. His will that controls the universe. His authority. God is the one who has the ultimate authority over everything. The Ninevites appeal to God's mercy. But without presuming that they deserve anything. See, they knew that they don't deserve this grace. They knew that they were undeserving sinners that didn't deserve God's mercy to be shown to them. But even so, they plead to this God. They plead to Him. They plead before the Lord. They knew God is a God of mercy. And maybe, just maybe, the Lord would save them. This request is, in fact, very similar to Moses' prayer on Mount Sinai. Exodus 32, verse 12. He asked God to turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Interesting that they believed, the Ninevites believed, that God could turn from his fierce wrath from upon them. Just as they have turned from their evil ways unto God. They are praying to the Lord for the same thing, to turn. The word repent, on the other hand, has more a sense of compassion, of being moved to pity. This speaks to the fact that God can change His way of dealing with men according to His sovereign will. God is free to deal with men whatever way He pleases. The attitude of the Ninevites is so remarkable that Jesus will use their response to Jonah's sermon to speak to the Jewish leaders for not hearing him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus says, Because they, that is the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Repented nation of Nineveh is a reminder for us today that if they repented when they heard Jonah preaching, oh, what a shame for us if we don't repent when we heard what Jesus said to us, if we neglect the one who speaks to us, the one who is greater than Jonah. What a shame for us will be if they repented even receiving just a seed of the gospel. And we have in the whole scripture, and we have in even their story for us, if we don't turn away from our sins. 
But this repentance is only possible because of God's reconciling grace. As we will see in our next point. Verse 10 says, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them. And He did it not. In verse 10, we have the demonstration of God's infinite mercy. For undeserving sinners, God's infinite mercy, God's compassion for the sinner man. And God saw their works. What an expression. God saw their works. At the same time, this makes us afraid. God saw their works. What does it mean? That God sees my works. What will God think when He sees our work? He doesn't look simply to empty words, to the things that we say, or when we are going through the emotions. No. He sees our works. And what does our work tell us about us? But on the other hand, this encourages us. Showing us that if we repent, if we turn away from the evil that one day we belonged, we, we were that evil nation, if we turn away from our evil ways unto God, He sees it. It's not too late to repent. And the expression that God repented is not the same as when they turn from evil, turn from their evil, Discerning away involves a complete changing of direction, as we saw. But God's repent refers to him being moved with compassion for that nation. Being moved with pity for that nation. A very similar statement is made in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. And rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Well, God is not man that he should repent, as to say in 1 Samuel 15, 29. Nevertheless, the scriptures also shows us that God is free to change what appears to be a judgment over a nation or someone when his people repent. Jeremiah 18, verse 8 says, If that nation against whom have I pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. It's a picture of God's mercy. It is tr true that in, in the history of redemption, in this, His sovereign plan, He has already designed all things. But from our eyes, it's almost as if he was about to destroy us, about to destroy Nineveh. And then he, he withheld that judgment because we repented, because they repented. And the only way this can take place, the only way God can remove judgment, judgment that they deserve and that we deserve, is because someone received in our place 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us, 
God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation is only possible because Christ took our place. Our trespasses were upon himself. You see, Nineveh was spared because Christ wasn't. The only way we can be spared from God's judgment is because Christ was not spared on that cross. We spoke about how we cannot remove the sharpness of God's work, word. We cannot remove, we cannot omit the reality of God's righteous judgment over all iniquity. But we cannot omit His grace either. We cannot hold one or the other. If we remove either of these sides, we ended up with a half gospel. And the half gospel is no gospel at all. What happened in Nineveh is no explanation except that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That's what happened on that nation. The full gospel came in picture on that nation. The wickedness of that nation was so great that came up unto the Lord by His grace. Much more abound. People try to manufacture revival, but the reality is that it's beyond our capacities. In some sense, we could say that we have here the recipe for our revival preaching, prayer, praying, repentance, the recipe for a revival. But the truth is that all these things happen because the Lord was willing. To save that people. Even against the stubbornness of his prophet, the Lord was willing to save that people. But a lesson that Nineveh teaches us is that a revival is possible. Even against the odds, even against the appearance, a revival is possible. We pray often for a revival, but many times we don't really believe it's possible. We don't believe it's possible for the Lord to do it again as He has done so many times in history. It seems against the odds that a wicked society would turn from their evil ways unto God. But Nineveh is the proof that the Lord can break the hardest heart. Our call is to preach, pray, repent. And the rest is on the Lord, on His sovereign will. But he can do it again if he wills. And we often think that the revival needs to take place out there in the world. A revival needs to break out in the world out there. But the truth is that we need to model it first. We need to experience it in our personal lives first. You see, we need to have our lives revived before the Lord. To completely turn away from evil and to the Lord. To submit all areas of our lives to the Lord. And say, yes, Lord, I submit my marriage unto thee. 
I submit my work, my studies unto thee. I submit everything. I turn away from the path that I once walked to walk into holiness before thee. We need to experience this revival in our lives first before it can overflow into the world around us. It will not happen out there if it doesn't happen inside us first. Just as the, a king is to a nation, we ought to instruct our families, we ought to instruct our society how to live a life of godliness. Then into the lives of the church. You see, we start with our families. We start with our lives. Then it overflows into our families. Then it overflows into the society around us. And it should be boiling within us first in order to overflow into the lives of others. But if this truth is not boiling within us, it will not overflow into, into the lives of others. This gospel has to become true in our lives. If we want this gospel to change the lives of others. God's compassion for sinners was certainly boiling in the heart of John Harper as he chose to sacrifice his life to preach the gospel. But sadly, instead of urging the lost souls as Reverend Harper did, we are taking the last life vests for ourselves and telling sinners that there is no place for them in the lifeboat, in our private lifeboat. We are making a private gospel as it becomes to us alone and no one else, as if God's hand was shortened from saving the wicked world around us. May the Lord have mercy on us if we make this a private gospel. If we don't preach the gospel, if we don't preach the gospel, they would have a better chance in the white icy waters around the Titanic. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom of whom they have not Heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Brothers, this gospel is compelling us today to be proclaimed, to preach the preaching, to proclaim the proclamation, to announce to dying souls who are perishing. Yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. How many days for the wicked society around us? We don't know. It could be tomorrow. There is no less sense of urgency today than there was in the times of Nineveh. It could be tomorrow. The gospel we proclaim is not just a gospel that will help to fix people's marriage, to help them to make better financial decisions. No, this is a gospel that can save their lives from hell. It's a unique gospel. It's a life and death matters. If, in, if we don't face this like it is, we'll never proclaim this message from dying souls to dying souls. 
This is the power of the gospel. That can save a sinner man from the complete destruction of God's wrath that is manifested from heaven. A survivor of Titanic. A man called Aguila Webb said this. I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night. The tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow, also on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. And he replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be. Shortly after, he went down. And there alone in the night, and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert, this man said. Just like that city, the unchangeable happened in the life of that man. Through that very last sermon, the very last minute sermon, he believed and he was changed. You see the power of the gospel that we carry, the treasure that we carry in jars of clay, but the treasure, the power of this gospel to change a dying soul from perishing. It's so easy, so easy to be quiet. To let the world around us to sink. I know this. I know how easy it is. But that is not our call. That is not what we were commissioned for. It was Jonah's call to proclaim. And it is our call to proclaim. And I hope that just like with Jonah... God will not let us alone unless we do what we have to do. We should be willing to cry, women, children, and the unsaved first. Because I know that though I die, I shall live. But what about these dying souls around me? What about this wicked nation around us? Yes, I stand secure though I die, but what about them? As the ship was sinking, Harper knew that indeed he could say that he was nearer my God to thee. But that wasn't the truth of many people on that ship. He knew that whatever happened to him, he would just be nearer to God. Doesn't matter what happened to him. He would face whatever he had to face because he knew he would be forevermore nearer God. But what about those around him? What about those who were going to die on that night? What about those on Nineveh? What about those around us? Dying souls. Do they have 40 days? Do they have 40 weeks? How long? 
until the sentence comes upon their lives? Will they be near God? Or will they be forever cast away from God's sight? I pray that all of us would leave this church today indeed nearer God. But more than that, fill with the burning desire of bringing others nearer God as well. This is our call. To preach, to proclaim the proclamation to souls that are perishing around us. To bring them closer into the one who is merciful and can save them. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, our most graceful and almighty God, O Lord, we come before Thee knowing that we fall short in so many ways. We need, Lord, to be recommissioned Oh, Lord, we need thy grace in order to be once again enabled to proclaim this message. So, oh, Lord, speak to us. Let, Lord, the same gospel that has transformed our lives, that has saved us from perishing, to overflow from within us into the lives of others around us. Oh, Lord, gives us a burning love for Lost for the lost souls, for those who are perishing, Lord. For we know not the day that thou would come again. So prepare us, Lord. Equip us, Lord, to proclaim this message. A sharp message indeed, but a powerful message that should transform the sinner man. Turn, Lord, our lives. Turn our lives completely. Turn our lives unto thee and to thy glory alone. And, O Lord, bring us nearer, O my God, unto thee. Bring us, Lord, closer and closer to thee, to a life of communion with thee, love and fellowship with thee. And let this love overflow into the lives of our families. Let this love overflow into the life of our church. And let this love overflow into the world around us. We pray, Lord, that this gospel that we hold so dearly would become true in our lives. We pray all of these in Jesus' name. Amen.